This is not going to be a typical message today. We're going to be something a little different. Uh, we, we do have an election coming up on Tuesday, and, uh, you know, we think it's an important one. And so there's no study sheet. I just want you to listen and consider. I'm going to start with some quotes through history and, uh, and let you kind of soak in the spirit of some of the things that have been said. It is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor. That was good old George Washington. Another, I sincerely believe that the principle of spending money to be paid by posterity under the name of funding is but swindling futurity on a large scale. Loading up the nation with debt and leaving it for the following generations to pay is morally irresponsible. Excessive debt is a means by which governments oppress the people and waste their substance. Thomas Jefferson. But, ah, think what you do when you run in debt. You give another power over your liberty. Benjamin Franklin. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Adams. But for the Bible, we could not know right from wrong. That was Abraham Lincoln. I realize it is fashionable in some circles to say that no one in government should encourage others to read the Bible. We are told we will violate the constitutional separation of church and state established by the Founding Fathers in the First Amendment. But the First Amendment was not written to protect people and their laws from religious values. Instead, it was written to protect those values from government tyranny. Ronald Reagan in our time. My favorite from Ronald Reagan, frankly, is we must be cautious in saying that God is on our side. Instead, the question we must answer is, are we on God's side? Well, in May of 2010, when probably half or more of you were not here, uh, Mike and Larry McFall and I did a short series on the principles expounded in what is called the Manhattan Declaration. And that's a statement of what biblical Christians should hold together in the face of cultural opposition. It was kind of a landmark of conscience so that the church at large would not lose its bearings in a hostile environment. And this declaration was largely the work of the late Chuck Colson and some companions who happened to be Catholic. Uh, And in the Lion and Lamb series, you will find articulate statements about the purpose of that declaration and the issues of the sanctity of life and marriage uh, that you can review uh, on the Lion and Lamb website. The message that I gave on religious liberty did not record due to technical difficulties, and I'm going to repeat some of that today. As Christians, we find ourselves and our convictions increasingly marginalized, 
criticized and sometimes even attacked. But this is nothing to be surprised about. Nor should we be discouraged. In John 16, it tells us, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, We glory in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope does not make us shamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. And those are passages of great comfort. But do those passages tell us to lie down and allow the cultural train to roll over our Christian heritage and its influence? That's the question we want to ask today. To analogize, as some Christians refuse to fight in war, are we called to cultural and political pacifism? More specifically, should we not care about laws? Should we sit out elections? Because in the end, God is sovereign and we just need to trust him for the outcome? Or do we have a duty to help guide the government that leads our country and our state and our communities as close as possible to God's design? Now, one could also ask, Do we have a duty to serve those in need and evangelize the world? Or does God's perfect plan and his sovereignty give us an excuse just to hang out? If you consider that Christians have often been at the core of major societal changes that may help you in responding, From John Newton and William Wilberforce in Britain to the Quakers and John Quincy Adams and Harriet Tubman in early U.S. history, the abolition of slavery was largely directed and energized by Christian conviction. In fact, it's hard to imagine that today blacks and women would have equal standing without the backbone of Christians, without opposition from both Protestant and Catholics to abortion, we've got to wonder whether anything would stand in its gruesome path. Today, we're going to discuss a number of issues that affect all of us and that stand to be tipped one way or the other by the elections that will occur in less than 24 hours, November the 6th. And before we finish, we want to examine some facts about what our government has been doing in recent years. Let's start with Christ's admonition. Give to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God. That simply, that pretty much sums it up, at least on a broad scale. Uh, But Isaiah said this. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. The Sovereign Lord has told me, Isaiah, to do these things. The Christian life necessarily involves 
purpose, calling, sometimes non-optional commands, and impliedly there may be commands that conflict with Caesar's decrees. In the uh, Manhattan Declaration, certain statements are made, and I'm going to read some of them here. bit lengthy, so please hang with me. It helps kind of set the tone for what we're talking about. Starting here, religious liberty is not a novel idea or a recent development, but is grounded in the character of God himself, the God who is most fully known in the life and work of Jesus Christ. Determined to follow Jesus faithfully in life and death, the early Christians appealed to the manner in which the incarnation had taken place. One second century Christian wrote this, Did God send Christ, as some suppose, as a tyrant brandishing fear and terror? Not so, but in gentleness and meekness. For compulsion is no attribute of God. Therefore, the right to religious freedom has its foundation in the example of Christ himself and in the very dignity of the human person created in the image of God. A dignity, as our founders proclaimed, inherent in every human and knowable by all in the exercise of right reason. Christians confess that God alone is Lord of the conscience. Immunity from religious coercion is the cornerstone of an unconstrained conscience. No one should be compelled to embrace any religion against his will, nor should persons of faith be forbidden to worship God according to the dictates of conscience or to express freely and publicly their deeply held religious convictions. What is true for individuals applies also to religious communities as well. What we're saying here is that God uses love and reason and his spirit to draw unbelievers, not coercion. This is the great divide between Christianity and Islam. God desires true and willing obedience from within, not outward compliance because of fear or intimidation. Freedom of conscience and religious expression are the cornerstone of a free and open society. That's why people want to come to the United States. Without it, not only can we be told what to believe, Government can acquire the power that is unlimited, even to the point of deciding who lives and who dies. The Manhattan Declaration points out that it is ironic that those who today support abortion and legal recognition of gay rights, quote, are very often in the vanguard of those who would trample upon the freedom of others to express their religious and moral commitments to the sanctity of life, and to the dignity of marriage as the conjugal union of husband and wife. In recent decades, a growing body of case law has paralleled this decline in respect for religious values in the media, in academia, and political leadership, resulting in restrictions on the free exercise of religion. We view this trend as an ominous development, not only because of its threat to the individual liberty guaranteed to every person, regardless of his or her faith, but because the trend also threatens the common welfare and the culture of freedom on which our system of republican government is founded. Restrictions on the freedom of conscience or the ability to hire people of one's own faith 
or conscientious moral convictions for religious institutions, for example, undermines the viability of the intermediate structures of society, the essential buffer between the overwhelming authority of the state resulting in the soft depotism Tocqueville so prophetically warned of. Disintegration of, of civil society is a prelude to tyranny. Lots of words. I mentioned there a phrase, soft depotism. What is it? Well, depotism is a form of government in which a single individual or a group exercises absolute power. And we think of Hitler or Stalin. But the most common example that we have is the manner in which England treated the 13 colonies. And in our Declaration of Independence, it states, when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute depotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. That's how we got started. Now, depotism can be by coercion, by law, but it can also be by a gradual weakening of resolve and conviction. An example might be, out of the literary world, we're here in Kirpravel. And when the four kids ended up in Narnia, Edmund got separated and then was enticed by the white witch, not by coercion, but by a concoction that she called Turkish delight. Once Edmund tasted the Turkish delight, he could not resist. Well, Alexis de Tocqueville was a French political thinker who came to young America in the 1800s, and he wrote about the fledgling republic. And it was Tocqueville who said, America is great because America is good. If America ever ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. Tocqueville had amazing foresight. And that's pointed out by an author named uh, Dr. Samuel Gregg of the Acton Institute. And he says this of, of Tocqueville. In his book, Democracy in America, Tocqueville suggested that democracy was capable of breeding its own form of defetism albeit one without the edges of harsh dictatorship with which Europeans were all too familiar. Tocqueville spoke of an immense protective power, which took all responsibility for everyone's happiness, just so long as this power remained the sole agent and judge of it. This power, Tocqueville wrote, would resemble parental authority, but would try to keep people in perpetual childhood by relieving people from all the trouble of thinking and all the cares of living. Such circumstances might arise if democracy's progress was accompanied by demands for a leveling of social conditions. The danger was that an obsession with equality was very compatible with increasingly centralized state power. Get in the picture? Tocqueville's vision of, a, of soft depotism is therefore one of arrangements 
that mutually corrupt citizens and the democratic state. Citizens vote for those politicians who promise to use the state to give them whatever they want. The political class delivers so long as citizens do whatever it says is necessary to provide for everyone's desires. The softness of this depotism consists of people's voluntary surrender of their liberty and their tendency to look habitually to the state for their needs. Now, do we see any soft depotism working today? Well, I want to take a look like at our health care law, which the president claims proudly is known as Obamacare, which may have some good ideas, but in effect forces all the private insurance companies out of the market eventually and places control for all health care in the hands of the government. Now, everybody wants care if they're sick or injured, of course. So you've got to admit that if you control health care, you have pretty good control over the people. But it goes much further than that because it controls, no, it violates conscience. This law mandates coverage of abortion and provisions for contraception in violation of the beliefs of the owners and founding groups of companies and religious institutions, including many hospitals and Christian employers. And as of October of 2012, there are at least 33 court challenges to Obamacare by private companies and religious institutions. Wheaton College, Houston Baptist University, Biola University, East Texas Baptist University, several Catholic colleges, Hobby Lobby, and Tyndall House Publishers are some of the plaintiffs to challenge who are challenging the Affordable Care Act which forces employers, regardless of their religious or moral convictions, to provide insurance coverage for abortion-inducing drugs, sterilization, and contraceptions under threat of heavy penalties. Now, churches are exempt from this health care mandate, but the Obama administration, through our own Kathleen Sebelius, argues that private employers, Christian colleges, and devout publishers of the Bible are insufficiently religious to enjoy religious freedom in America. The federal government, therefore, mandates that these institutions violate sincerely held religious beliefs by covering morally objectionable items in their health plans. It seems ironic, at least to me, that when those who advocate that the government provide cradle to grave care for the masses. The hard part is just getting to the cradle. Think about it. Then again, if you think about it, it's consistent. You see, the fewer people that are born, the fewer pieces into which the pie needs to be divided. And, the logic goes, if we can eliminate more of the children of the poor, particularly minorities, we can use our resources for those who are more worthy and healthy for existence. And this is exactly the philosophy of the eugenics movement, born, I am sorry to say, here in the good old U.S. of A., uh, 
through the early work of uh, the progressives like Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood, and then subsequently and conveniently adopted by the Nazis in their quest to purge impurities from their race. On another front, the percentage of people who do not pay federal income taxes and who are not claimed as dependents by someone who does pay them jumped from just under 15% in 1984 to 49.5% in 2009. So, in 1984, 35000000 paid nothing in terms of income tax. In 2009, 152 million paid nothing in income taxes. Well, not a problem, as long as you ignore reality. Think about it. If the representatives of the people are elected by an increasing percentage of voters who pay no income tax and receive entitlements, how long will it be? before these representatives respond more to the demands for yet more entitlements and subsidies from non-payers than to the pleas of taxpayers to exercise greater spending restraint. When nearly half of the voters have no reason to care about a promise of tax cuts from a particular party or candidate, do you think they might just be a little addicted to that sweet and soft depotism much like Turkish delight. In addition, those on government assistance has swelled under the present administration. They're even passing out cell phones and plans and paying for them, and they're advertising for people to go on public assistance. Things have been speeding up a bit. In the first 224 years of of U.S. history, since we were founded as a nation, the national debt climbed to a staggering $6 trillion. During the Bush administration of eight years, it climbed another $4 trillion. That's shameful. However, in less than four years, it's climbed another $6 trillion. Republicans and Democrats share equal blame here. But the present administration has overseen deficits of well over a trillion dollars for each of the last four years with similar projections for the next four, if given a chance. When government controls health care and massive deficits and debt can be used as a rationale to impose higher and higher taxes on fewer and fewer people, it seems to me that we may be approaching a tipping point. Now, I want to say that there's probably most, if not all of us, have received some sort of government assistance. When I got out of the the Marine Corps and I went to law school, I got the GI Bill. That's an assistance. But what's important here is to consider what is God's economy or his plan for provision? And frankly, that brings up another question. Why has our country, spending like drunken sailors on payday, Why have we avoided capsizing like Greece and some of the other European countries who have been spending like that and now have run out of money and are trying to cut back and mobs are in the street who are used to all those benefits demanding more and more and more and they're going to take the country down in the process? Why have we avoided that? 
Well, certainly one of the reasons is that just the, the sheer size of our economy has bought us some extra time. But I think there's another reason. Remember what Tocqueville said, America is great because America is good. So a significant reason that our country has been able to avoid economic collapse and gives us the illusion that things are working out well is, frankly, Christianity. More specifically, the Christian work ethic. What does the Bible say about work? Well, speaking to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it. Work. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. And Moses said to the assembled congregation of Israel, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh you shall have a holy day, the Sabbath, for complete rest to the Lord. Yeah, you get your rest, but the rest of the time you work. Paul said in Timothy, But if any provide not for his own, and specifically for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Then a long passage you may want to look at in 2 Thessalonians 3, starting at verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread, without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working day and night so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have a right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like bums. That was mine. (laughs) Now, such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. These passages, and certainly the Proverbs and and many others, are filled with references to the importance of personal responsibility and work. Christians are commanded to work and to avoid being a burden to others if they have the ability. Those who can work are to first take care of their own household and then minister to those who cannot work. Now, I heard a practical criticism of the new health care law from a doctor who said that today's doctors as a whole, coming up through the culture, are simply too selfish to take the cuts in compensation that will be required by the new health care system. He said that 
such a standardized system of, of, of health care might have worked in the old days when most doctors were motivated by the Christian work ethic. They worked and they helped heal others because it was the right thing to do, whether they got paid or not. But this doctor believes that under the new socialized medicine of the Health Care Act, young and bright people will simply forego a profession in medicine for more lucrative careers. And it occurred to me, thinking about that, that the same might be true of taxpayers. Christians are to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, including taxes. But as Christianity declines in effect or is watered down through worldly influence, the Christian work and, frankly, the tax-paying ethic will likewise decline. If you look at Europe, the empty cathedrals and streets filled with protesters are a testament to this process. They're just a ways ahead of us. To the extent that America still holds to biblical principles, we will do what is right and possibly uphold this teetering socialism. But as Tocqueville says, if America ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. I want to get down to some facts. Uh, You've probably heard of some of these, probably not all of them, uh, about what has happened in the last four years. I want want you to compare what you hear in terms of these factual statements with the spirit of the quotes that we, we, we had in the beginning. I know some of this sounds unbelievable, but I have sources for every single one of them. In April of 2009, when speaking at Georgetown University, President Obama ordered that a monogram symbolizing Jesus' name be covered up when he was making a speech. In May of 2009, the president declined to host services at the White House for the National Prayer Day, which is a prayer, a day established by federal law. Uh, He did, however, host White House iftar dinners in honor of Ramadan. In October of 2010, the president began to deliberately omit the phrase, the creator, when quoting the Declaration of Independence, something he has done no less than on seven occasions. And in November of 2010, the president misquoted the national motto saying that it is e pluribus unum, rather than in God we trust, again, which has been established by federal law. In in February of 2012, uh, the president's administration uh, declared that they were going to forgive student loans in exchange for public service, but they announced they will not forgive student loans if the public service is related to religion. Shifting to the military here, uh, it's often said that there are no atheists in foxholes. You heard that? Just a a recognition, uh, an admission that, you know, when you're faced with hostility and possible death, you tend to turn to God. Uh, You can't expect to win a battle or survive as a nation in this fallen world if those charged with defending against aggression are faint of heart. Uh, Without inner fortitude, motivated by some higher cause, the self-preservation instinct will kick in, 
and will see desertion in the face of enemy fire. While many in the military avoid matters of public faith, our military institutions have always been a place where reliance upon God has not only been respected but encouraged. American military leadership has always provided chaplains and religious services in the field and on board ship to help soldiers and airmen and sailors and Marines voluntarily connect with God and sometimes to comfort them in the loss of their comrades. The President of the United States has as his first office the Commander-in-Chief. He calls the shots for the military. Any significant institutional change cannot occur without his awareness, if not his direction. What has happened within our military institutions in the last four years? In April of 2010, Franklin Graham, son of Billy, was invited and then disinvited from the Pentagon's National Day of Prayer event because of complaints from the Muslim community. In June of 2011, the Department of Veterans Affairs prohibited references to God and Jesus during burial service at a national cemetery. In September of 2011, the Air Force Chief of Staff prohibited commanders from notifying airmen of programs and services available to them from chaplains. And in that same month, the Army issued uh, guidelines for Walter Reed Medical Center stipulating that no religious items, Bibles, reading material, or any other facts are allowed to be given away or used during a visit. In November of 2011, the Air Force Academy rescinded support for, get this, Operation Christmas Child, you know, the boxes, a program to send holiday gifts to impoverished children across the world because it is run by a Christian charity. But in the same month, the Air Force Academy spent $80,000 to add a Stonehenge-like worship center for pagans, druids, witches, and Wiccans. In February of 2012, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point disinvited Army General and decorated war hero Lieutenant General William Boykin from speaking at an event because he's an outspoken Christian. In February of 2012, the Air Force removed the word Dei from the patch of its Rapid Capabilities Office because that's the Latin word for God. And in that same month, the Army ordered Catholic chaplains to not read a letter to, to their parishioners that their archbishop had asked them to read. And in that same month, the Obama administration made apologies for Korans burned by the U.S. military but when Bibles were burned by the military, numerous reasons were offered why it was the right thing to do. Now, despite the assertions that we often hear that government should be secular and neutral towards religion, everybody knows. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that whoever leads the country, whoever sets the policies will determine significant issues which of necessity support or tear down values that we consider to be basic to not only to our faith but to our country. Shortly after taking office in January of 2009, the president lifted restrictions on U.S. government funding 
for groups that provide abortion services or counseling abroad, forcing taxpayers to fund pro-abortion groups that either promote or perform abortions in other nations. In that same month, the president's nominee for for deputy secretary of state stated that American taxpayers are required to pay for abortions and that limits on abortion funding are unconstitutional. In March of that year, uh, the Obama administration shut out pro-life groups from attending a White House-sponsored health care summit. In that same month, the president ordered taxpayer funding of embryonic stem cell research. In that same month, the president authorized $50 million to go to the UN Population Agency that promotes abortion and works closely with the Chinese population control officials who used forced abortions and involuntary sterilizations. In May of 2009, the White House uh, budget eliminated all funding for abstinence-only education and replaced it with comprehensive sexual education, repeatedly proven to increase teen pregnancies and, and abortions. And that, that, uh, that budget item has been repeated in subsequent budgets. In that same month, uh, the president's uh, officials assembled a terrorism dictionary calling pro-life advocates violent and charging that they use racism in their criminal activities. In July of 2009, the Obama administration extended federal benefits to same-sex partners in foreign service and executive branch employees in violation of the Federal Defense of Marriage Act. And in September of 2009, the Obama administration appointed an Equal Employment Opportunity Commissioner. Uh, This person said that society should never tolerate any private beliefs, including religious beliefs, if they may negatively affect homosexual equality. In September of 2010, the Obama administration told researchers to ignore a judge's decision striking down federal funding of embryonic stem cell research. February of 2011, the president directed the Justice Department to stop defending the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, defining marriage as one man and one woman. In March of 2011, uh, the administration refused to investigate videos showing Planned Parenthood helping alleged sex traffickers get abortions for victimized underage girls. In July of 2011, the president allowed homosexuals to serve openly in the military, reversing a policy originally instituted by George Washington in 1778. In September of 2011, the Pentagon directed that military chaplains may perform same-sex marriages at military facilities, again, in violation of the Defense of Marriage Act. And in October of 2011, the administration eliminated federal grants to the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops for their extensive programs to aid victims of human trafficking simply because the Catholic Church is anti-abortion. And in October of 2011... Uh, the president's Muslims advisors blocked Middle Eastern Christians from access to the White House. Finally, there was an interesting case that went to the Supreme Court in, uh, about a year ago. And in that case, the Obama Justice Department argued before the Supreme Court that the ministerial exemption in federal hiring should be rescinded. Okay? Uh, this would mean that churches would be forced to violate their doctrinal beliefs and would 
be required to hire individuals at odds with the church's doctrinal statement. Uh, during oral argument, an astonished Supreme Court justice asked the president's attorney if the federal government should have jurisdiction over whom the church hired as its minister, and the attorney said yes. Well, thankfully, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected that claim, but it does make you wonder. Now, many of these actions in the last four years are literally unprecedented in the last 400 years of our nation's existence. I want to remind you that four years ago, we were promised hope and change. And today, all we're trying to do is grasp the extent of that change in our nation. I have nothing but respect for our leaders. Our family prays regularly for our president and our governor and our, our local leaders. When the election results are in, we will, as Christians, again have the duty of praying for those who, in, who are in authority. And frankly, we don't know how it's going to turn out. We do know that there are no perfect candidates, and if all my candidates win, I certainly do not expect all to be well within our state and our country. But life will go on. It is clear to me, however, that I cannot passively sit on the sidelines. It could be that it's God's plan for us to go through some persecution. And maybe that's what we need to grow stronger as a church. But whether we're pleased with the outcome or not, we as Christians have got to continue to be salt and light. Those around us should see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. We should be about the business of pointing others to Christ, regardless of the political regime. Our works should always reflect God's glory. Our works should be meaningful to God. In fact, if things continue as they are, or even if they, we get a new government, given that so many have now tasted the Turkish delight, this may be our last chance to, to regain any kind of a foothold for personal responsibility and reliance upon God rather than in government. The church will either be a force for redemption or it will go back to sleep and become an irrelevant relic of the past. Now, I'm not trying to tell you who you should vote for, but I certainly hope you will not sit this one out. If you're 18, you need to be doing something on Tuesday. You've received teaching here on the biblical principles uh, we provided candidate comparisons for both local and the presidential races, and if you didn't get one, get one on the way out at the front desk. You've had all the information you need about these elections to know where the candidates stand in relation to those biblical principles. You cannot say that you have not been informed. I want to end by referring back to Mike's message from last week, from Second Thessalonians 2, where he taught, Therefore, brothers... Stand firm and hold on to the teachings you were taught, either by our message or by our letter. 
may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. That's often been said, that the cost of freedom is eternal vigilance. I urge you to exercise not just your right, but your responsibility to vote on Tuesday. Take a stand and stand firm. Lord God, we want to thank you that you have given us a nation in which righteousness has been exalted. Lord, we have to admit, we don't know where we're going right now. We seem to be wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. But Lord, we pray that you would put the people and the policies in place that will draw our nation closer to you. We know, Lord, that our salvation is not in politics. It's not in any particular candidate. But we pray, Lord, that you would work in our country, in our state, in our city, to bring about your best as closely as we can get. Father, we pray that we, regardless of the outcome of these elections, would be a sweet savor to you, that we would be a light shining others in your direction. Thank you, Father, for this privilege that you've given us. Help us to acquit ourselves well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.